So the men and women in the church at Corinth were those who were recently converted to Christ through or from hedonism, which simply put was the pursuit of pleasure, which included things like self-indulgence, which we're seeing a lot more again in our world, which is sad. And now with Corinth, there were numerous temples dedicated to various idols and animals were being sacrificed to those idols. And during a meat sacrifice, typically the fattest portion of meat would be consumed on the altar, and then another portion would be given to the priests, and the remainder of the meat sacrificed. That meat would be, uh, the remainder of the meat would sacrifice would be sold in the markets called shambles, because in those days, they didn't have fridges and freezers, of course. So the meat had to be consumed fairly quickly, and therefore they sold it at greatly reduced prices. Now, as we all know, everybody loves a bargain, apparently even Christians. And for many, they saw nothing wrong with buying meat sacrificed to idols. So they would go to the temple market and be able to buy tenderloin at chuck roast prices. It was great. And just because the meat had been offered to idols, it's no big deal. It was also common for a believer to be invited to someone's home and enjoy a delicious meal, including this meat that had been sacrificed and offered up to idols. They would eat it. They would enjoy it. And even though they knew where the meat came from, they didn't seem to care. Now, the dilemma for some weaker believers was this. Should the Christian be eating meat sacrificed to idols? And that is one of several questions that uh, they asked in a letter that they had sent to Paul to speak on. And in chapter 8, Paul addresses himself to this very question. But before addressing the initial concern regarding meat offered to idols, he points out a much more foundational issue. We'll talk a lot about that. And that is the discussion of the liberty of the Christian. Look what it says in verse 1 through 3. I'll read it to you. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now many of the Corinthian believers really struggled with their own conscience when it came to eating meat that had been offered as a sacrifice to a pagan god. And they were really troubled in their conscience about it. But there were others in Corinth who boasted about their knowledge. They would say, well, it's nothing. Who cares if the meat was offered to idols? Those idols are just a man-made carving. They're not a god, so get over it. It doesn't really mean anything. And in their minds, they rightfully knew that the sacrifice meant nothing at all, and it certainly didn't change anything about the meat. It was still the same tasty piece of meat that it was before being sacrificed, and so they thought, hey, I can eat the meat without being troubled in my conscience over it. Now, it's this attitude that Paul is addressing in regards to the Corinthian believers. He's speaking to those that are taking liberty because of their knowledge and doing what? They're offending the weaker brother or sister. Paul tells them, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So what does Paul mean? Paul confirms that the idol is nothing and goes on to explain the problem that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. So think of it this way. Knowledge puffs up. Typically, when somebody's puffed up with knowledge, they become a little bit arrogant. They become a little bit prideful. But love edifies. The word edify simply means to build one another up. And how do we do that? We simply love each other and encourage each other. Church, Christian behavior is founded on love, not knowledge. And the goal of the Christian life is not knowledge, but love. 
David Guzik said, both knowledge and love have an effect on our lives and that each of them makes something grow. The difference between puffs up and edifies is striking. It's a difference between a bubble and a building. Some Christians grow, others just swell. And I like that. <laughs> now this next verse should be read every day in our schools, our colleges, our universities, and our offices of our government. Paul goes, on, Paul goes on to say, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. And this is so true. The man who thinks he knows the most usually knows the least. Why? Because the more you know, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> Shakespeare said, man, poor man, so ignorant in that which he knows best. So think about it this way. What do you know best? What area of knowledge are you most proficient in? Is it sciences, mathematics, languages? For me, none, but there may be some. Let's say your area of proficiency is in the area of science. How much of all that can possibly be known in science do you know? Then compare what you know with what God knows. Go ahead and read Job chapter 38. Not now, of course, but when you do, Put yourself in Job's shoes when God answered Job from the whirlwind and says, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Then says to Job, Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Just ponder our Creator's first question to Job. He says to him, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It's a pretty tough question. What? Well, he knows where he was, but it's just to think about the point that he laid the foundations of the earth. So science is never going to know anything close to what God knows. What about mathematics? Again, that's not me. If your proficiency is in math, of all that can be known in mathematics, how much do you really know? How much does anybody really know? Every once in a while, you'll come across people that believe they're proficient in the Bible, and they may have considerable knowledge, but I'll tell you what, there's so much more about the Bible that they don't know than what they do know. You could read the Bible every day for the rest of your life, and if you're open to being taught, you're going to continue to learn. There's no end to what the Bible can teach. I certainly know just enough to know that I don't know much at all. In fact, it seems the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. And when it comes to our creator and his word, I am glad about that. Because if I could know all that God knows, he wouldn't be God. So if you come across a person who seems sort of puffed up and says, hey, I'm an expert in, the Bible, in Bible knowledge and I can answer any questions you might have. The reality is, he's fooling himself and Paul would conclude that he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And remember, Christian behavior is founded on love, not knowledge. And the goal of the Christian life is not knowledge, but love. Verse 3 says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. I think this verse is extremely important to grasp. So let's try and figure out what Paul's saying here. He's saying that there can't be knowledge of God. There can't, sorry, there can't just be knowledge of God. There must also be love for God with intimacy. There can be a tendency of those who have biblical knowledge and theological understanding to neglect intimacy with the Lord. I know for me, 
if I get to the point where I think I have any kind of knowledge and understanding, it at times makes me spend less time with the Lord in prayer. I just think, well, I know the answers. I know what he's going to tell me I should do, so I don't need to pray about that one. But that's so wrong. And I tend to spend less time focused on loving God, and that's sad. Now, to clarify, when it says if anyone loves God, let's face it, there are many people who know about God, but they really don't know him and can't love him intimately and are not known by him. Sadly, the term Christian has lost most of its meaning in our secular world. Today, many people call themselves Christians or believers, but the label has more to do with the culture or upbringing than true faith in Christ. Listen to what it says in Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And before I continue discussing what true intimacy with God is, I want to clarify. True believers in Jesus have been redeemed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit by understanding that they are sinners in need of a Savior because, as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. Jesus rose on the third day to prove his victory over sin, death, and hell, and because of all he has done, we can have our sins forgiven and be promised an eternal home in heaven. Amen? Amen. If we placed our faith in Christ. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you not to put it off because Jesus is coming soon. I know we've been saying it for a really long time, thousands of years, um, but he is coming very soon. So that said, let's look at true intimacy with God. So for the believer in Christ, true, in, true intimacy with God is not simply a feeling on par with a romantic relationship. It goes so much deeper than emotion. It goes down to our very souls and is reflected by our actions because God can't have intimacy with evil or with disobedient Christians. True intimacy with God begins with drawing near to him. And Jesus is our perfect model of intimacy with God. Jesus loved the Father and obeyed him and did nothing on his own. A vivid example of his love and obedience was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. Suffering the agony of anticipating what was to come, Jesus asked that the fate he was about to suffer might be removed from him. But what did he pray next, church? Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is a perfect example of true intimacy, reflected in obedience as Jesus yielded his will to that of the Father. Church, there can only be intimacy with God when we're in good fellowship with him through obedience. Then we can know the joy and peace that comes from trusting him and yielding to his will just as Jesus did. So what's the takeaway? Well, we all need to be students of the word. We all need to continually grow in the knowledge of our Lord and become solid in our theology. But as we do, we must make sure that love for God has a priority. Church, we must make sure that love for God has preeminence in our lives. And that seems like a tall order in these crazy days we live, but it shouldn't be. Church, I encourage you to read your Bible every day, have a quiet time, and let God's Word lead and correct you. 
But you must not let your study time be a substitute for walking with them day by day or, take, or talking with them about every situation. Now, moving on in the last half of verse 3, it says, this one is known by him. So what does it mean to be known by God? To be known by God is to receive God's favor or approval. For instance, if anyone makes his decision regarding meat offered to idols out of love to God and man, and not out of mere knowledge, that person wins the smile of God's approval. And let me say, that is pretty incredible. So, let's get to the meat of this teaching, okay? Sorry. Uh, I always have bad puns, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's read those. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Church, there is only one God. Amen? Amen. Listen to what it says in Colossians 1. It says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things exist. Alfred Mace put it this way. I don't know him, but I just came across this. So Christ cannot be second anywhere. He is firstborn of every creature because he has created everything. He is also firstborn from the dead in connection with a redeemed and heavenly family. Thus creation and redemption hand the honors of supremacy to him because of who he is and of what he has done. Then in all things he might have preeminence. He is first everywhere. This simply and wonderfully means the Lord Jesus Christ has double preeminence, first in creation and then in the church. God has made the decree that in all things he may have the preeminence. And as we read that, where it says in all things he may have the preeminence, it's only proper for us to ask ourselves, does he have preeminence in my life? I don't know about you guys, but I can honestly answer for myself nowhere near as much as he deserves. Now let's look at the futility of idols. I want to read to you a few verses from Isaiah 41. And brace yourselves. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. And it's as God is addressing the nations and challenges them to produce idols that can actually do something. So, as we read, starting in verse 21, Present the case for your idols, says the Lord. Let them show what they can do, says the King of Israel. Let them try to tell us what happened long ago so that we may consider the evidence. Or let them tell us what the future holds so we can know what's going to happen. Yes, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Then we will know you are gods. In fact, do anything, good or bad. Do something that will amaze and frighten us. But no, you are less than nothing and can do nothing at all. Those who choose you pollute themselves. So God's word here confirms to us that idols are less than nothing and they can do nothing at all. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, it's no big deal to eat 
meat sacrificed to idols because we know there is only one true God, our Father, and there is only one true Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, I personally don't eat meat for religious reasons. I eat it because I just love the way it tastes. <laughs> I'll share a little funny with you before we get into the serious stuff. John Smith was the only Protestant to move into a large Catholic neighborhood. On the first day, on the first Friday of Lent, John was outside grilling a big juicy steak on his grill. Meanwhile, all of his neighbors were eating cold tuna fish for supper. This went on each Friday during Lent. On the last Friday of Lent, the neighborhood men got together and decided that something just had to be done about this John guy. He was just tempting them to eat meat each Friday of Lent, and they just couldn't take it anymore. They decided to try and convert him to Catholicism. So they went over and they talked to them, and they were so happy that he decided to join all of his neighbors and become a Catholic. So they took him to Mass, and the priest sprinkled some water over him and told him, you were born a Baptist, you were raised a Baptist, and now you are a Catholic. Well, the men of the neighborhood were so relieved because now their biggest Lent temptation was resolved. Well, year goes by. Next year's Lent rolled around. First Friday of Lent came, and just at supper time, when the neighborhood was settling down to chew on their cold tuna fish dinners, came the wafting smell of steak cooking on a grill. The neighborhood men could not believe their noses. What on earth is going on? They called each other up and decided to meet over in John's yard to see if he had just, you know, plain forgotten it was Friday in Lent. The group arrived just in time to see John standing over his grill with a small pitcher of water. He's pouring small droplets over his steak on the grill and saying, you were born a cow, you were raised a cow, and now you are a fish. The Apostle Paul begins now to address what is a very real and serious concern regarding some of the believers in Corinth. And this is when the joking ends, people, because this is the real lesson for today. Paul needs us to really understand and be sensitive to the conscience of not only ourselves, but perhaps even more importantly for our weaker brothers and sisters. So this is where, if you've been sleeping so far... Maybe the laughter woke you up, but uh, I need you guys to pay attention. Verse 7 says, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So we know that idols are nothing. We know that there is only one true living God, one Lord, but not every man has this knowledge. In Paul's day, there were those who were still struggling with their conscience when it came to eating of meat offered to idols, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In particular, there were new believers in the church at Corinth, believers who grew up in a pagan situation where they experienced and participated in the worshiping of these idols and eating meat that was sacrificed in the temple. They would eat at restaurants and enjoy delicious meal prepared with meat offered in the ceremony and sacrificed to idols. That was normal. But Paul now explains that things have changed. He tells them, you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But having come out of the pagan practice of eating meat offered in sacrifices to these idols, you now struggle with eating that meat. 
because for all your lives you were eating it and worship to this particular idol. Now that you're a Christian, it offends your conscience. It bothers you to do it. And if that is true for you, then you shouldn't defile your conscience by eating the meat. Now what does Paul mean when he says they're weak? Well, it certainly has nothing to do with physical or even spiritual weakness. It's a term that describes those who are very concerned about doing wrong in the matters of moral indifference. For instance, as far as God concerned, it's not wrong for a believer to eat pork. Now, it would have been wrong for a Jew to do so in the Old Testament, but a Christian has complete liberty to cook up an entire pack of bacon and chow down. But a Jew who is converted to Christianity might still be very concerned and think it's wrong to eat that bacon or to have a roast pork dinner. And this is an example of what Paul is referring to as a weak brother, which just means he's not living in the full enjoyment of his Christian liberty. And that said, this is a very important teaching that Paul would have us to understand because as long as the weaker brother thinks it's wrong to eat pork, then for him it would be wrong and he would sin if he went ahead and ate it. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now it's true that man's conscience is not infallible, and I think we can all agree with that, and our conscience must be educated by the word of God. But as Merrill Unger explains, Paul lays down the law that a man should follow his conscience even though it be weak. Otherwise, moral personality would be destroyed. In verse 8 it says, But food does not commend us to God, for, we, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So food in and of itself is not a matter of great consequence to God. We don't get any special favor with God if we refrain from certain food or drink. And partaking of certain foods or drinks certainly doesn't make us better Christians. But what we do need to be aware of is that our knowledge must be tempered by a higher principle. And that is the principle of love. Reading, I'll read verse 9, 10, and 11. It says, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to the idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? So, as th thinking about this in their time, and now we're, we're in our days, is it a concern for us in our day to be aware that there might be people who struggle as they watch us at the barbecue, licking our lips as we get ready to eat a scarf down a perfectly delicious top sirloin steak that's been sacrificed to an idol? Well, typically, I, I wouldn't think so. And in Paul's day, and certainly for the Corinthian believers, this was a very real thing. But in our day, we don't have to deal with meat sacrificed to idols. We just go to the supermarket or our favorite butcher shop and choose the best cut of meat that we can afford. But is that entirely true? I didn't know this. I found this out as I was doing this message. Because what I didn't realize was that many of the slaughterhouses in Canada use the halal method of killing the animals. Everybody familiar with the halal method? Yeah? Well, interestingly, the halal method is supposedly, in their eyes, a better way to, to prepare meat. But what they actually do, and I'll spare you the grim details of how it's done, other than to say in the halal method, 
that Allah's name must be pronounced over the meat during the killing process by a Muslim. And this is happening in a lot of the slaughterhouses in Canada. Now many interpret this to mean the animal was sacrificed to a false god or an idol. So this meat sacrificed to idols concern can come up in our day. If you have people who are, they enjoy and buy halal meat. Let's say you invite some Christians over for dinner and begin to tell them how you think halal meat is so much better for them than non-halal, but they don't see it the same way. What do you do? Well, according to the scripture and out of love for them and to avoid a difficult situation, you just might have to order takeout from their favorite restaurant because they're probably not going to eat the meat. Now, remember what Paul tells the Corinthians and us. The reality is that the food sacrificed to idols, including halal food, is no different. There's one God who provides for us, and claiming the name of a false god does nothing to the food physically or spiritually. Nothing is going to happen to you if you eat the halal meat. And I love the fact that when I sit down to eat, I thank the one and only true God for providing the food, and I ask him to bless the food and use it to keep me healthy and strong. Do you think he can do that? Even if it's halal meat? Yeah, I don't think he's up there going, halal, it's the one I can't do. Of course not. And it's another good reason to thank God for our meals and ask him to bless the food because we don't always know what strange ritual might have been done to the meat. Not that it matters. But like the Corinthians of Paul's day, we should always act out of love and be concerned with not causing others to stumble. If we are with others who believe halal food is wrong to eat, do we exercise our knowledge and liberty and demonstrate, or do we demonstrate love and refrain out of concern for their conviction of conscience? We don't beat them up, think telling them they're dumb. Or if we're served food by someone who makes a point that it's halal, we should in love quietly refrain as a sign that we don't accept the authority of a false god to which it was dedicated. Or maybe you've gone to a restaurant or a market or a school or somewhere or you suspect they're serving halal food. Out of love, we should just eat it, enjoy it, and give thanks to the one true God that's provided it. Amen? Now, it's not just the eating of meat that these scriptures relate to. There are so many other ways in which a weaker brother could be caused to stumble. Well, as one example, if my conscience condemns a certain act, for instance, drinking alcohol, and I go ahead and commit that certain act because I feel pressured, you know, let's say the guys invite you out for beers after work, and I go out and I have a beer or two, then I've sinned because my conscience is telling me no. Now, the Bible doesn't say drinking alcohol is a sin. In fact, consumption of small quantities is a matter of Christian freedom, and in some cases, it can even be beneficial. We even know that Jesus turned water into wine. But for me, I haven't had a drink of alcohol since I became a believer in 1995. Not because I think it's wrong. It's mostly because I can't stand the taste of alcohol. I hate it. And so as a pastor, it was simple for me. I never want to cause another brother or sister to stumble. So I have committed in my conscience to abstain from drinking alcohol. I won't even take a sip of wine. And if a day comes and I disobey my conscience and I have a drink of alcohol, then for me, I have sinned. But let's say that I was one of those pastors who felt that I had great liberty to drink, and there are many. Now, one day while I'm exercising my liberty, along comes someone who's been an alcoholic, happens to go to the church that I am part of, 
recently accepted Christ and has been delivered from his alcoholism. Amen. And he walks into a restaurant to grab a bite, and who does he see sitting there but me having a drink? He's a bit shocked, but he thinks, hey, guy's my pastor. I guess if he can drink, then I guess it'd be all right for me to have a drink with him. But yet in his conscience, he knows it's wrong because he knows he has a drinking problem, but he's emboldened to go ahead and do it because he sees my liberty. But when he goes to order a drink, he has this conscience that is just tormenting him, telling him no. Church, what must he do? He must obey his conscience. If he doesn't, he's sinning. And it could literally destroy him. Now, I would never attempt to talk someone out of their personal convictions, especially in the example that I gave. But what about other types of convictions that someone might have that, to me, seem to be legalistic and restricting that person from enjoying the full liberty in Christ that they should be enjoying? Well, I think it would make sense to discuss it with them if they asked me my opinion, but I wouldn't encourage them to abandon their conviction simply on the basis of my own freedom. And even though I might be able to persuade them into doing something that I have the freedom to do, they might later feel that their walk with the Lord has been compromised or their, that their prayers are no longer heard by God or any number of other, by God, or any other number of things that they might believe have been compromised. And then as we look at verse 12, we'll see the potential danger in trying to use our knowledge to change the convictions of the weaker brother. It says in verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's pretty serious. Let me read it to you again, verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So not only can a weak conscience become defiled, but it can also become wounded. There will be times when a weaker brother can be shocked or saddened by observing our liberty. And when we have wounded the conscience of our brethren, we sin against Christ. Frederick Louis Godet, a theologian from the 19th century, said, sin against Christ is the highest of crimes. Why? Because Jesus cares about even his weakest children. Remember what Scripture teaches, whatever we do to the least of his brethren, we do to him. And that's pretty sobering. So before we say something like, you know what, I have liberty to, in my Christian walk, to do whatever I want, to go wherever I want, to eat whatever I want, I can do whatever I want. I must first realize that if flaunting my liberty and boasting about my knowledge and maturity knowingly causes my weaker brother or sister to stumble, I sin not against him, but against Christ. Not only against him, but also against Christ. I think I'll get the worship team to come on up. Are they here? Are they around? Ah, I see movement. As we wrap it up here. In verse 13 it says, Therefore, Paul speaking, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul makes this principle very clear. And please understand this truth. Our actions can never be based only on what we know to be right for ourselves. We also need to consider our brothers and sisters in Jesus and what is right towards them. It is easy for a Christian to say, I answer to God and God alone, and to totally ignore how their attitude affects their brother or sister and how it could cause them to stumble. 
But I also remember that while it's true, we will answer to God and God alone. Fruit fly. Um, sorry. I guess he was interested. <laughs> so we can go ahead and say, I answer to God and God alone, and to totally ignore how their attitude affects their brother and sister and how it could cause them to stumble. But also remember that while it's true we will answer to God and God alone, we will also answer to God for how we have treated our brother or sister. We need to learn today's lesson and apply it to our lives. And what is that lesson? The Christian behavior is founded on love, not knowledge. And the goal of the Christian life is not knowledge, but love. When Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble, that is Paul exercising his love for others above his own extensive knowledge and liberty, and perhaps even more importantly, his concern for sinning against Christ. Church, there are so many areas in life that we need to consider when it concerns causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble. This passage addresses the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, but what about some of the others? Like consumption of alcohol or the TV programs we watch, the movies we watch, the books we read, how we dress, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the places we frequent, the people we hang out with, our speech, the control of our tongue, things like tattoos. There's so many things you could think of that could cause a brother to stumble. But the point I want to make is this. Yes, with knowledge comes liberty, but that liberty must be overruled by love for the brethren. If it could cause another to stumble... So let's end with this. There are many things in the Christian life which, while not forbidden in the Word of God, would yet cause needless offense to weaker Christians. While we might have the right to participate in them, a greater right is to forego that right for the spiritual welfare of those we love in Christ, our fellow believers. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you for the guidance that it provides. We thank you for how clear it is in instruction. Lord, I just pray as we all leave here today, we're not just thinking about lunch. We're just thinking about what we've just processed in your word and how important it is to not only have knowledge, to not only know your word, but to understand how love is so important. That without love, knowledge is usually just harmful. And so, Father, we just thank you for being able to come and gather together and fellowship together. And I pray as we go out, we'll take opportunity to fellowship with one another. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that you've saved us. Thank you, Lord, that we know you're coming soon. And Lord, may we just bring glory and honor. And, and may we, Lord, do what you've called us to do until you return, and that is to occupy until you come. And may we go out and share the gospel, share the truth. It might cost us a little, but Lord, it's what we're called to do. So, Father, just thank you for this day. And everybody said, Amen.